Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest Regulation Around the World podcast, which covers anti-money laundering. My name is Simon Lovegrove, and today I will be joined in this podcast by partners from the Norton Rose Fulbright Financial Services team, who will share their insights into anti-money laundering developments in their jurisdiction. Specifically, in this podcast, we take a look at anti-money laundering developments in the United Kingdom, the United States, Europe, and Singapore. There's a great deal of AML activity going on in these jurisdictions. So without further ado, let's join our first guest. In this first part of the podcast, we're going to focus on the United Kingdom. And to give me their insights into the UK's anti-money laundering regime, I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Hani Sadar, our Head of Risk Consulting in Amir. Hani, great to have you with us. And I just wanted to start with the following question. What are some of the common mistakes UK firms are making in the AML space? Thanks, Simon. I think one of the key challenges remains the challenge around governance. Now, governance is a wide-reaching statement um, and incorporate many other parts of the organisation when you're talking about communication. But having core AML financial crime governance in place is key and is often where some of the biggest mistakes emanate from. Um, Having adequate business-wide risk assessments in place can help and using the findings in these assessments to design appropriate policies, procedures, and internal controls is critical. I would also say as well, that firms need to keep a strong eye on the nature, type, and outcomes of different due diligence that they perform. But of course, having um, the adequate governance in place will help to facilitate better due diligence, utilization of due diligence, um, and of course, understanding where the largest risks might be. Thanks, Hannay. I just now want to turn to the UK's regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority. And as mentioned in our regulation around the world update on anti-money laundering, earlier this year, the FCA published a new web page on determining competency of heads of compliance and money laundering reporting officer candidates. How worried should firms be regarding the FCA's web page and what action should they have taken as a result of it? Certainly, Simon. I mean, nobody can deny that it's a challenging job. In this environment, it's fast-paced, it's fast-moving, expertise is key. The the FCA had expressed um, some of the concerns they had and their experience with SMF 17 applications. Um, And what you saw was a number of key points um, that they had raised around what firms should consider. In particular, they wanted to look at training and experience. So let's cover those two in a bit more detail. Around training, prospective MLROs, heads of compliance, should really have completed relevant tailored training courses, um, examinations, assessments, and demonstration of learning to sufficient length and depth. Now, whilst experience is clearly a key motivator, and we'll talk about that, there's undeniably a need to have a core level of training, and that's where I think they were going with this. In cases where training has occurred many, many years ago, Um, there may be an expectation to evidence continuous professional development. And I think candidates need to be aware of that. The FCA doesn't specifically endorse courses, you see, which is often a challenge for the financial services industry. However, we do see a number of industry standards, for example, the ICA, International Compliance Association, 
and ACAMS Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. Uh, one qualification I think is more international as opposed to the more domestic orientated um, ICA qualification as we understand. However, I think the idea that you would have a professional qualification to complement your experience um, would be a good signal. Now on the experience point, the perspective MLRO stroke head of compliance um, is not necessarily required to have held the same position previously, which is one of the misconceptions, but the experience should be relevant and it should be easily identifiable that they are appropriately qualified through experience, yeah? So for example, a strongly qualified compliance manager with many years of experience under their belt would more likely have a strong element of financial crime, AML and governance experience that could justify an appointment. For example, a deputy MLRO looking for a step up as well, doesn't necessarily mean that they were specifically MLRO before. An applicant can have a background and experience within law, compliance, consulting. All of those types of experience make for very good potential candidates. And I think that's where the regulator was trying to get to to this. The applicant should also be able to demonstrate that they have a wide range of experiences in demonstrating these necessary skills to establish that they can operate a compliance function. And I think that comes down to the management point, Simon. Um, so I think in conclusion, it's likely an individual um, with only one element of experience, such as first line, may not be able to demonstrate the necessary experience in a competitive market. But I think firms more generally just need to be open to a wide range of experiences and being very clear in demonstrating the candidate's um, expertise. Thanks, Annie. That's very helpful. I just now want to turn to another um, piece of work that the FCA has recently done. And that was the publication of the results of its review regarding financial crime controls in challenger banks. Um, should other types of firm be looking at these results? And if so, what should they be thinking about? Mm, absolutely, Simon. Yes, the review was focused on challenger banks, but I think it's undeniable that the themes arising can be found more broadly in other FIs. Now, we touched already on the due diligence processes, and certainly firms should be considering uh, their CDD, EDD processes, and remember using them to demonstrate the right outcome. So it's important that they are um, processes that are employed effectively within the organization. Transaction monitoring will always be key. It's not just about the investment in the appropriate systems, but what you do with the outputs and ensuring there's enough manual oversight to complement your transaction monitoring infrastructure. Then clearly an emphasis on both SARS and PRIN 11 notifications all of which can equally apply, especially when you consider the Dear CEO letter addressed to retail banks last year, which also included similar themes. So clearly we see a trend there. I think more generally, and uh, looking at our first point around this idea of governance, it's absolutely key that firms really invest in the right governance. Now, parts of those governance um, investments look at the formal governance that you put in place, everything from staff, through to the right rigid reporting, but also the informal governance, the things that in larger organizations, for example, can really help more committees, better type of record keeping and more inter-firm cooperation carefully managed. Thanks, Anne. And, and as my final question, I'm just gonna put you a little bit on the spot. There are a number of reforms on the horizon impacting the UK's anti-money laundering machine. If there was just one reform you would pick for firms, 
to place on their radar, what would it be and why? That's quite a tricky question. Should we do it from the perspective of short, medium um, and longer term? And I think the reason why is because they are quite similar in their themes. I think in the short term, um, the updates to the MLRs are due the end of June and will potentially require some significant changes to both processes and procedures. So that's in the short term. I think in the longer term, the economic crime plan too, speculative at this stage, but when it is published, will give us an idea of some of the further themes around the UK financial crime agenda for the medium term. And then I think, Simon, in the longer term, um, the Law Commission recently published their options in relation to reform of the Corporate Criminal Liability Act. So we may see some change to that that could have impact on how many corporal criminal prosecutions are out there, dependent, of course, on what there actually is in terms of reform. Um, But I would say that's going to be a key long-term reform, along with, as I mentioned before, the economic crime plan. Thanks, Annie. I'm sure we'll have you back talking about some of these things at a future date. And then just finally, um, I understand you've been organising a financial crime conference on the 12th of July at our offices in London. Indeed, we have. Thank you, Simon, for for mentioning that. So um, we have an event that will focus on um, financial crime. Um, and anti-money laundering, um, and it's intended to be broadly themed, so it will cover many of the topics that we've talked about uh, on this podcast, um, but also it's an opportunity for participants to ask open questions um, to a skilled panel, um, and on that panel we have a number of industry participants, trade body delegates, and of course we also have as our keynote um, Louise from the JMLSG, she is the chairperson or the JMLSG. So we fully expect to have um, a fully invigorated and um, important event for those involved in AML and financial crime, and indeed in broader compliance as well. So we look forward to that event next month. Should be a super event, Hannah, and further details regarding uh, the event can be found on the Norton Rose Fulbright website. Hannah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks as always. Thank you, Simon. In this part of the podcast, we take a look at anti-money laundering developments in the United States. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, Tom Delaney and Celia Cohen. Tom, if I could address my first question to you, which concerns the US Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, uh, why should non-US banks be wary of this act? Well, Simon, that's a good question. I, I'm not so sure that U.S. bank, non-US banks should be any more wary of the act than US banks. And, and you know, there are there are reasons to be wary, but there are also some reasons uh, to be optimistic in terms of, of the statute and what it might bring. Um, in particular, uh, it instructs the statute instructs FinCEN to evaluate the effectiveness of existing Anti-Money Laundering Act reporting and to, to make um, improvements to, to what have been uh, longstanding filing obligations, such as the obligations to file suspicious activity reports. So non-US banks with US operations um, will find themselves to be the beneficiaries of any kind of streamlining that may occur at, as a result of that. Um, the act also gives a big push for the improved use of technology, uh, including uh, artificial intelligence in, in anti-money laundering compliance. Again, uh, entities with U.S. operations um, have, have probably had difficulty uh, in convincing their regulators that these kinds of advances can be as effective 
as some of the longstanding means of, of uh, monitoring transactions and so forth under the BSA regime. So, so these are these are additional improvements that could be that that, that institutions can benefit from. Um, examiners are supposed to be better trained as a result of this statute, and um, FinCEN is supposed to explore the possibility of issuing no action letters, which would be a great thing because um, institutions could write uh, about you know could request that that certain kinds of activities be granted no action status, and and those letters are supposed to be coordinated. FinCEN is supposed to coordinate what it does in that area with uh, the prudential regulators like the Federal Reserve or the OCC. So again, where you have US operations, that would be that that would be a good thing. Now, that's not to say that there aren't reasons to be uh, for potential concern. Um, the, uh, the act provides for increased penalties for repeat offenders uh, that would include prohibitions from being in the industry, uh, potentially longer jail terms, and, and higher fines. Um, it encourages whistleblowers through, uh, it provides incentives for whistleblowers by giving them uh, the potential for higher awards if, if their information leads to a successful uh, prosecution for anti-money laundering violations. And, um, and it, it includes, and, and this is something that um, Celia will get into, uh, it includes expanded subpoena powers uh, for uh, authorities to issue subpoenas to non-U.S. banks. Uh, so th those are those are some of the those are some of the sort of the the, pro, the, the good things and the bad things of, of the act. Uh, one of the interesting things that's going on um, right now is is the uh, implementation of what is called the Corporate Transparency Act, which was another element of this law, uh, and uh, it requires FinCEN to develop uh, a database on. Um, uh, the beneficial owners of, of companies. Now, this is fairly standard stuff for uh, banks and other financial institutions operating outside the United States, but it's it's rather unique to the U.S. and and there will be issues about the type of information that's re requested, particularly for non-U.S. companies uh, that maintain uh, operations in the United States and would have to register under this this that could have to register under this uh, provision. Um, and, and there, there may be a, a, a potential conflicts with data protection and other laws in, in other jurisdictions. So, so that's uh, a little bit of the, I think, the, the both the pros and cons, Simon, of, of what the, uh, the statute provides. Thanks, Tom. Um, perhaps I could just stay with you for my second question. With all the reforms on the horizon, what should those institutions subject to U.S. anti-money laundering regulation be doing now? In order to get, in order to weather the gathering storm, Simon, that's a good question. I would say that the one thing institutions should do overall is pay attention to the process. This is a very substantial piece of legislation. It will give rise to numerous regulatory proposals. Um, those proposals will go through a notice and comment process that um, that will that will allow for public comment on what the regulators are considering, and the regulators are required to take those comments under, under advisement as they think about what the final rule would look, rules will look like. So participate in that process. Uh, engage with trade associations who may, who may make uh, their own comments uh, to the regulators with respect to that. Um, where it comes, for example, to the uh, establishment of, a, of the corporate registry that I, I mentioned a moment ago, uh, that is undergoing a three-phase implementation process. Uh, FinCEN has has, has 
issued a, a proposal with respect to uh, the type of information that will be collected pursuant to that. That comment period is closed, but there will be likely another phase that, that it will go through before it's finally implemented. Institutions should pay attention to what those information, uh, what information will be collected and, and how that may be available to them because the next phase will dictate the access that institutions have to information that will be collected as part of the corporate, uh, corporate registry. And, and that will be key because the question here will become whether this, this information will be helpful in alleviating some of the work that institutions have to do to determine beneficial owners of corporations or whether it won't have any impact or may not have any impact at all. There can be a, a wide latitude of, of effectiveness here. And, and this, is, this is an important area to be followed and to be commented on on the part of financial institutions. I would note that FinCEN uh, under the act has actually fulfilled one of its statutory obligations, which is the issuance of national priorities. Um, those priorities describe what FinCEN considers to be the most significant threats facing the United States with respect to uh, money laundering and, and terrorist financing. They include corruption, cybercrime, domestic and international terrorist financing, fraud, uh, transnational criminal organizations, drug trafficking organizations, human trafficking and human smuggling, and uh, proliferation financing. Now that these priorities have been issued, institutions should, eva should evaluate the extent to which their current risk assessments, their anti-money laundering risk assessments, take those kinds of issues into consideration and, and determine whether they may have to amend some of their risk assessments or, 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 and or their policies and procedures in order to properly control for, for risks identified as part, of our, as part of the national priorities because those will likely be areas that the U.S. Of the, uh, supervisors will examine for going forward. Thanks, Tom. That's very insightful. Um, Celia, if I could just turn to you now, and it concerns the Department of Justice and crypto. Uh, can you comment on the development of a crypto team within the DOJ, the resources the department is adding to these efforts, and what this focus will mean for cryptocurrencies and also, I'd be interested in your thoughts on how does this initiative align with the executive order on cryptocurrencies that President Biden issued in March this year? Sure. Thanks, Simon. So the um, development of the crypto team, that's the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team that was um, began in October of 2021. Um, and this team combines the money laundering and asset recovery section of the Department of Justice with the computer crimes and intellectual property section, as well as, of course, involving the U.S. attorney's offices throughout the country. Um, and this, um, this team alone signifies the focus of the Department of Justice on cryptocurrency, um, obviously putting the resources in and recognizing that this is uh, an issue for the government, um, I think, uh, for multiple reasons. I mean, obviously, I think most people look at this and think, oh, this is a new concept. This is a different form of, of currency. And how do we deal with this? And, and there are those issues and the issues of, of innovation and regulation. Um, but, you know, I think if, if you step back, it's even more simple from that. I think from the Department of Justice's view, it's like, okay, now we have a new means 
to do the same old crime. So we're talking about money laundering here. Uh, crypto is a perfect avenue. Um, and you know, in one sense, there are ways to trace it, but there's a lot out there of the mixing and everything where you know cr criminals can hide um, and they're anonymous, and it's very difficult. So it, that's where uh, the government is focused on trying to uh, get their arms around that, make sure that they can uh, control it and continue to prosecute criminals through this new means. Uh, and you know, it's it's a big a big problem. I think we're seeing this every day um, from uh, the big cases of money laundering. Um, the there's been recently insider trading. Um, cases regarding crypto, you have violations of sanctions using crypto, you have straight up fraud when your average person is getting defrauded from uh, various crypto uh, currency companies. So all of those issues need to be addressed. And obviously the big, you know, another big one is ransomware, um, which is really uh, harmful to, to companies who are being overtaken and, and must, you know, feel compelled sometimes to pay these ransomware so that they continue to do their business. So I think for sure, um, the resources, the government is very focused on it. In terms of the executive order on cryptocurrency, you know, at the same time, I, the president is focused both on that aspect of it, as well as understanding that it's sort of here to stay and how can we um, have innovation, um, but at the same time, not allowing criminals and um, you know, unregistered and regulated in, uh, individuals and companies um, dealing with this. And so sort of like gathering our arms around that and figuring out a better path forward. Um, I see, I think we've seen this um, in a lot of ways recently, uh, just the other day, uh, a bill was proposed um, that, you know, seeks to really get the CFTC more involved in the regulation. In the past, it's, you know, we've seen a lot of the SEC um, finding that, the exchanges are unregistered um, and that you know, crypto is a, is a security uh, and this bill would also try to get uh, the CFTC also more involved in it, uh, given that the CFTC, um, it, it, you know, considering it, it's also viewed as a commodity. I think this is reminiscent of what we saw with the Dodd-Frank Act where, you know, it sort of then involved both the SEC and the CFTC. So, it's a long-winded way of going around and saying, yes, I mean, you know, the Department of Justice is focused on this, the president is focused on it, the SEC is focused on it, and in the news every day, we're seeing um, various uh, crypto exchanges being uh, enforcement actions against them and um, trying to get, you know, the, the criminal arms, I'd say, <laughs> around this industry. Okay, thanks, Celia. And if I could just stay with you for a second and direct my first question, my final question to you. And it's something I want to pick up on, which Tom mentioned earlier regarding subpoenas. Um, have you seen instances of the DOJ issuing subpoenas to non-US banks under the expanded anti-money laundering subpoena power? And is this authority undermining mutual legal assistance treaty arrangements? Yeah, so there have certainly um, been instances. Uh, I think that just to you know level set for a minute, um, under the new AML Act, the government now can subpoena foreign banks that have a correspondent bank account in the United States. 
Uh, and this is significant. Um, it can be subpoena for any investigation of a violation of federal law um, in any civil asset forfeiture proceeding. And you know, any, of course, any investigation under the Bank Secrecy Act and money laundering laws and regulations. So it's it's pretty broad, but more significant, it's regardless of whether the correspondent account was used in connection with a potential violation um, of US law. So it's just basically if you've got a correspondent bank here and you're doing something, you know, abroad, we can use that to subpoena and get those records. So it's not limited to records related to the correspondent account, uh, bank account or bank, sorry, correspondent bank, uh, you can get the records um, overseas. Previously, you know, that was only the MLOT process. Now in the Department of Justice manual, it still encourages prosecutors to go through the MLOT process where there is um, an agreement with that country. Uh, the reason, and so I think that that is still, of course, being used. Um, and for those countries where there's an agreement, it allows the government now to, to uh, subpoena those records. Why prosecutors would want to use the subpoena um, over MLAT is because the MLAT process is often very uh, lengthy. It, it, you know, it takes a long time. It's very bureaucratic. Uh, and this is much more direct. So while it's being encouraged to use the MLAT, I think there are certainly, and I think we'll see this more, instances where the government just doesn't want to wait um, and for, you know, in the interest of justice are going to be using, uh, and I know we've, there have been instances in this already, going to using this subpoena power. And while a non-U.S. bank can um, petition a U.S. district court to, to modify or to quash the subpoena, uh, the AML Act, uh, specifically prohibits courts from quashing or modifying the subpoena solely on the basis that uh, compliance would conflict with foreign bank secrecy or confidentiality laws. So something that you know, most people would think, oh, well, we're not gonna be able to do this. They've, they've written that into the act um, saying that, that courts can't quash or modify the subpoena on those grounds. Okay, thanks, Celia. That was very helpful. And thank you also for joining us today. My thanks also to Tom for sharing his thoughts and insights. And that concludes the US section of this podcast. In this part of the podcast, we focus on Europe as a whole, focusing on initiatives from the European Commission and the European Supervisory Authorities. To take us through this, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Anna Carrier, a legal consultant in our government relations team in Brussels. Anna, it's really great to have you here. And as my first question, I wanted to cover the European Commission's legislative proposals amending the European Union's anti-money laundering framework. Of these proposals, the negotiations on a draft regulation amending the 2015 regulation on transfer of funds are the most advanced. Why is this? And broadly, what changes do the amendments make? Yes. Hello. Hello, Simon. Hello, everyone. This is correct. Yes. The AML package published by the European Commission in July last year included a number of proposals aiming to strengthen the European AML CFT framework. Just by means of background, um, in addition to the proposed amendments to the transfer of funds regulation that you have mentioned, the Commission also proposed a new regulation establishing an EU-level AML authority, um, new AML CFT regulation that would make the relevant rules directly applicable across the EU and also another round of amendments to the um, existing directive. And 
known as um, uh, MLD sets. But back to the transfer of funds regulation. It is true that the review of this proposal is more advanced than the rest of the package. The main reason for that is willingness amongst European co-legislators to strengthen regulatory framework for crypto assets. And this became even more prioritized after February this year and the start of war in Ukraine, which um, created realization among decision makers, probably even more, that crypto assets are sometimes used to circumvent financial sanctions, and they might be used to do so in terms of sanctions against Russia. So there is, um, as, as there is no way to track such transactions, there was therefore a great and urgent need to um, introduce more transparency into the crypto markets. And this set of amendments proposed by the European Commission is aimed at exactly this, by proposing to implement in European law the Financial Action Task Force, so the FATF, recommendation to accompany the transfer of crypto assets with information on the originator and on the beneficiary of each transfer, the so-called travel rule. The proposed legislation will introduce an obligation for crypto asset service providers to collect and make accessible data concerning the originators and beneficiaries of the transfers of crypto assets they, they undertake. The text details the type of information that the crypto asset service provider of the originator will have to obtain and verify prior to the executing of the transfer, transfers in crypto assets. It also sets out obligations applicable to the crypto asset service provider of the beneficiary, including the obligation to have in place effective procedures to detect missing information on the originator or on the beneficiary. But um, as mentioned earlier, discussions amongst the co-legislators progressed relatively swiftly. And at the moment, the review is in its final trilogue stage. That said, in contrast to the earlier part of the process, the trilogues are not progressing very fast. And to date, in fact, only just one round of discussion took place in end of April, on the 28th of April. This is because the agreed negotiating positions of the Council and of the Parliament differ quite significantly. And some of the substantive points um, discussed in this first trilogue meeting included issues related to data protection, inclusion of references to targeted European restrictive measures, transfers to non-compliant supplier and risk mitigation measures, as well as the issue of transfer to and from unhost wallets. And this latter point is the most contentious, so I'll just say a couple of words about it. Um, very briefly, by the way of background, the European Parliament proposed in its position that in case of a transfer of crypto assets, made from or to an unhosted wallet, the provider of a crypto asset transfers should collect information from its customer, both on the originator and on the beneficiary, and will also be required to verify the accuracy of information with respect to the originator or beneficiary behind the unhosted wallet, and ensure that the transfer of crypto assets can be individually identified. And the parliament negotiators made it very clear that this issue remains of critical political importance. On the other hand, the Council and the Commission contested Parliament's proposal and claimed that it goes over and beyond the part of recommendations, and as such, it might not be possible to implement also from the technical point of view. That said, Commission had been tasked to prepare in advance of the next trilogue round an analysis of solutions implemented in other jurisdictions. So this issue remains very much open. So just to wrap up, the next meeting is um, discussions of in trilogue discussions are scheduled at the end of June, and we should see then if the positions become a bit more aligned. 
and whether indeed there is a momentum to promptly adopt these new rules. Thanks, Anna. That was very helpful and also very comprehensive. Um, I just want to pick up now on another um, EU legislative proposal, which you just mentioned a moment ago, and that concerns the creation of an EU anti-money laundering authority. Um, how significant, in your view, is this proposal for firms conducting business in the EU? Yes, that's correct. And I think it is quite significant, if and when adopted, we should probably say. Um, so just um, again, to as, as a brief reminder, the Commission proposed to create a single EU-level anti-money laundering authority. And the key problem identified um, that this initiative seeks to address is that the current supervision of the AML-CFT rules in Europe is uneven in terms of quality and effectiveness. There are big differences in resources and practices amongst um, the member states. And as we know, financial crime is borderless. So this fragmented approach to supervision and enforcement of the AML rules in Europe creates significant loopholes. So to fix this, the Commission proposed that the authority will have some far-reaching tasks. And importantly, from the financial markets perspective, it will be directly supervisory this new authority will be will 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 be directly responsible for supervising um, a limited number of the most risky cross-border financial sector obliged entities such as credit institutions and other financial institutions that operate in across several member states. The authority will have the powers to adopt binding decisions, administrative measures, sanctions towards directly supervised obliged entities. This is probably the most important part of the proposal as it takes part of the AML-CFT competence away from national supervisors. And one of the crucial elements here are the criteria that the authority will have to apply in order to select those financial institutions subject to its direct supervision. This particular set of provisions is of major importance to financial institutions as it will determine which AML system they will fall under, the national one or the EU one. And just to flag, the industry is calling for some adjustments to the proposal, for example, to make the methodology that the authority will use for the purpose of selection of those obliged entities a more risk-based. So there is some uh, further um, uh, fine-tuning to, to be made. In terms of other proposed competences of the authority, it will have various tasks to ensure the effective and consistent functioning of the AML-CFT supervisory system in the EU. And this is um, yet another issue that will have to be carefully looked at in the legislative review process. Um, is the issue of shared competence or rather sharing competences between the authority and national supervisors. Again, from the financial entities perspective, it is important that this division is clear and that there are no overlaps or duplications in, in, in competences because this will be um, very, very problematic in practice. Another task just um, to, um, to complete the authority if and when created will have uh, will provide support to national financial intelligence units to coordinate certain activities of those um, units in member states it will also be responsible for the oversight of supervi supervisors in the non-financial sector with regards to compliance to the um, aml cft requirements and finally it will develop regulatory technical standards and implement implementing technical standards where this is provided 
uh, fall in the um, in the relevant um, um, AML legislation. It will also have powers to adopt guidelines and recommendations addressed um, to oblige entities and supervisors, uh, national supervisors, or um, uh, financial intelligence unit. Again, this is an area which is very much subject to discussion and will have to be closely looked at in the review process, in particular, how this new authority's competence will fit with the existing and arguably, as we know, quite broad existing body of um, AML CFT rules. Thanks, Anna. Um, as my final question, I just want to get your views on the proposed AML regulation, which will be directly applicable um, in member states. And this is the first time I think Europe is having a directly applicable regulation in the AML space. Now, the regulation brings certain changes and novelties to the EU's AML landscape. And I wondered if you could describe some of these. Yes, that's that's um, that's very much correct. Europe currently doesn't have directly applicable AML rules, and this is exactly what this proposed regulation um, tries to address. It tries to it's 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 aimed at harmonizing the main AML CFT obligations across the EU, and it will be um, directly applicable. The regulation does not simply transfer provisions from the existing AML CFT directives, but makes a number of um, substantive changes to the provisions. So, for example, in order to mitigate new and emerging risks, the list of obliged entities as it exists right now is expanded to include crypto asset service providers, but also other sectors such as crowdfunding platforms and migration operators. So this is quite important development. Again, we talked about crypto assets um, just a moment ago. So this proposal brings them directly within the, uh, within the AML framework. Um, the regulation also intends to ensure consistent application of rules across the internal market, and to this end, it, the, the, it introduces requirements in relation to internal policies, controls, and procedures. Um, those are clarified um, also in case of um, groups, um, also in the space of customer due diligence measures that are made more granular with clear requirements according to the um, the risk level of the customer. Again, um, another piece of um, uh, novelty um, that the, the regulation introduces is the requirements in relation to third countries that are reviewed to ensure that um, enhanced due diligence measures are applied to those countries that pose a threat to the EU's financial system. Requirements in relation to politically exposed persons are also subject to some of the amendments, but those are a bit more minor um, clarifications rather than a bigger um, um, overhaul. And this in particular um, focuses on the issues of definition of politically exposed person. Um, another area of um, change, uh, upcoming change is the area of um, regulation applicable to beneficial ownership. And that there the requirements are um, supposed to be streamlined to ensure an adequate level of transparency across the EU and new requirements are introduced in relation to nominees and foreign entities to mitigate risks that criminals hide behind intermediate levels. Um, finally, rather further to guide more clearly the reporting of suspicious transactions, red flags um, raising suspicion are clarified where disclosure requirements and private to private sharing of information um, remain um, unaltered. And again, um, 
one other area that um, that will be um, for, for clarification that the that um, and that the regulation intends to address is the consistency with existing EU data protection rules. And here requirements for the processing of certain categories of personal data are introduced and shorter time limits are provided for retention of personal data. Um, and finally, the measures to mitigate the misuse of bare instruments are strengthened and the provision to limit the use of cash for large transactions is inserted in light of the um, proven low effect of the current approach lying on traders in goods for implementing AML CFT requirements in relation to large cash payments. So there's quite a lot of new content and um, uh, this probably also explains why the discussions um, amongst the co-legislators are, are taking um, some time. Um, and this is indeed the case if we are still um, awaiting the final um, decisions by the, by, the, by the Council and the Parliament, and we're still some time out before the trilogues will be able to commence. Thanks, Anna. There's an awful lot to look out for um, in this new AML package, and thank you for sharing your thoughts and insights today. Uh, that concludes the EU part of this podcast. And further information on developments within the EU regime can be found in our accompanying regulation around the world update. And now in this last section of this podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Wilson Ang, a financial services partner in our Singapore office. Wilson, it's always great to have you with us. And this year sees a significant moment for Singapore when it takes on the presidency of the Financial Action Task Force in July. Can I thereby start by asking you what you think this will mean in terms of international AML policy development? Thanks, Simon. Always good to join you um, here. Uh, Singapore's Mr. Raja Kumar will be appointed as the FedEx president in July for a two-year term, as you mentioned. And Singapore has been a very active member of the FEDF since it joined the organization in uh, 1992. And Mr. Raja is also very experienced in FEDF matters, uh, having been head of Singapore's delegation since 2015 and a member of the FEDF's uh, steering group, which provides advice to the president since 2018. So we will undoubtedly see robust work from the Financial Action Task Force under his leadership. Now, based on the outcome of the most recent uh, FEDF plenary in March of this year, we expect that beneficial ownership will continue to be a priority in AML policy development. The FEDF is gravely concerned about corporate entities and structures being misused for money laundering and other illicit purposes. And while the task force has released some revised standards, these are going to be continually reviewed to ensure effectiveness and, and relevance in light of global developments. So there is also widespread uh, recognition that the global community is facing increased challenges arising from rapid digitization worldwide. So we are likely to see, I think, some developments relating to updated guidance and standards addressing financial crime, in particular in the cyberspace, enhanced regulation of virtual asset service providers and the like. Thanks, Wilson. I just want to turn now 
two regulatory developments in Singapore and some horizon scanning. Um, what do you think we are likely to see from the local financial regulatory authority, the Monetary Authority of Singapore or MAS, in the coming year? That's right. The, the MAS um, recently released its enforcement report in April. And what is clear from the report is that uh, it has taken and will continue to take stiff enforcement action against both entities and individuals where warranted, uh, whether this be criminal prosecution, financial penalties, or prohibition orders, uh, excluding people from the financial industry. MES has also reported expedited timelines for reviews and investigations. So this means that we will likely continue to see robust and swift enforcement outcomes. The MES has also highlighted a number of enforcement priorities for the years ahead. What we find particularly interesting is the focus on senior management accountability. Uh, MES has highlighted that firm action will be taken against entities and individuals who breach AML and CFT requirements, and that board and senior management are expected to exercise what they call strong oversight over money laundering and terrorism financing risks and holding senior managers accountable for breaches by their financial institutions or their subordinates is therefore a stated enforcement and prior priority for the MES. We see this as being very much in step with global developments in attributing liability or personal liability to the directors, controllers, and other senior officers of companies and financial institutions. Um, and if lastly, I would add that MES also collaborates very closely with international regulators and law enforcement agencies, which will undoubtedly impact global financial institutions and other entities. And just in December of last year, MES conducted a, a joint operation with the Hong Kong authorities into suspected cross-border pump and dump activities for shares that were listed in Hong Kong, which were in contravention of Singapore's Securities and Futures Act as well. So MES's uh, cooperation with international counterparts uh, enables it to obtain assistance and information for the purposes of enforcing and securing, com securing compliance with securities and derivative derivatives laws in Singapore. And we see this potentially resulting in more uh, increased action against global entities and other entities with cross-border connections. The MES has obviously also cooperated with the US authorities most notably in the 1MDB enforcement uh, actions. Thanks, Will. Some busy times ahead. Um, as my last question, it concerns Cosmic, um, a new digital platform that Singapore is developing, which we mentioned in our regulation around the World Up data. Um, do you think that Cosmic will be a game changer? I, I think it is a significant initiative uh, when it is fully developed and rolled out. So now, obviously, we are early days, but there is a concern over considerable information asymmetry between banks regarding what are actually common you know, customer and risk factors. Now, this in some informational uh, asymmetry is easily exploited by criminal actors who conduct transactions through a network of entities with that whole accounts with different banks, such that each bank by itself does not have sufficient information to detect and to disrupt these illicit transactions in a timely manner. So each bank only sees a slice of the action. The Cosmic is a platform and an initiative that seeks to address this by breaking down these information silos and allowing information on customers or transactions that cross certain risk thresholds to be shared with other banks or the authorities. 
Now, obviously, there are concerns about safeguarding the interests and privacy of legitimate persons. And so MAS has said it will introduce a, a legislative framework to ensure that information is shared only for uh, AML's CFT purposes to enable a bank to determine and to examine whether there are reasonable grounds for suspecting a customer of engaging in illicit activity or to warn other banks that a customer is engaging in potentially suspicious behavior. A point to note though is that um, I think you might still, you'll still take some time for us to see the full effect uh, and implications of COSMIC. MES has indicated that this platform will be developed and deployed in phases. So it's not gonna be a big bang. And that for a start, the platform will only involve six major commercial banks in, in Singapore. Um, and provisions will then be made to allow for the platform to be extended to a wider segment of the financial sector in the future. Uh, information sharing on COSMIC will also be voluntary in the initial phase. Uh, this is to provide the participant banks with adequate time to familiarize themselves with the platform. And so MES is definitely being quite um, innovative and looking forward uh, and, and also wanting to prioritize operational stability to give the industry enough of an implementation runway. The uh, consultation paper on COSMIC that uh, MES released was, um, was in last October and a response has yet to be published. So we are looking forward to seeing that in due course. We are also anticipating um, more details about the draft legislation and the actual workings of the COSMIC platform. So this is very much a developing space that we are uh, monitoring. But we certainly expect the platform to take the industry forward in its efforts against money laundering and terrorism financing, and we look forward to its launch. Thanks, Wilson. That's really, really helpful. I think this is a really interesting development to, to keep our eyes on, and we'll probably have you back to let us know how things are proceeding with this. Thanks, as always, for sharing your insights. And that concludes the Singapore section of this podcast. So that concludes this Regulation Around the World podcast covering anti-money laundering developments. Further information can be found in our written Regulation Around the World update on anti-money laundering, which can be found on the Norton Rose Fulbright website, together with previous editions of Regulation Around the World covering ESG and horizon scanning, etc. For those in London, don't forget our AML conference that Hani mentioned earlier. And as ever, many thanks for joining us. We hope you found this podcast helpful. Goodbye. Goodbye.